pray. Jesus, we want to pray that you would open up your words to us. And uh, I've got nothing, literally nothing to add uh, to anyone's life. But you have the words of eternal life. I want to pray that you'd speak. Amen. Uh, normally, I uh, avoid a certain level of self-disclosure when I'm preaching. Um, because uh, it's unhelpful and it's inappropriate in some ways to pour out my heart while I'm standing before you. We don't want to hear uh, everything that's happened to me. We'd rather hear what's happened to um, Jesus and what Jesus has said. But I I do want to begin this morning by telling you um, something of my own story uh, of the last few years of my life. I am uh, someone who uh, struggles with anxiety. Um, I'm never entirely sure why. Uh, When people have researched what contributes to anxiety, as I'm going to say later, a large part of it is genetic, some part of it is... Uh, to do with the circumstances we face, and then other parts are to do with the choices we make. And I, through various situations, have come to struggle with anxiety and depression. I've received treatment for that through counselling and other, other areas, and through um, prayer. Uh, when I had a particularly profound experience of depression a few years ago, um, actually I had one of the two or three occasions in which I would legitimately say I had a vision uh, if you're a uh, guest with us this morning or you're listening to this because someone's told you to listen to it, um, don't tune out. I'm not a nutter, I don't think. Uh, I was praying. I was praying through a particular form of contemplative prayer and I'd been really struggling for several months and I'd been seeing a counsellor and I was just coming out of it. And as I was praying this uh, repetitive prayer over and over, just looking at Jesus and uh, praying to him, um, I had a vision of Christ embracing me and... All I can say is that from that moment onwards, my anxiety and my depression was broken. It wasn't gone completely, but the, the sense of the overwhelming love of Christ really did dispel the darkness. And I'm, I'm sharing that because I've had similar experiences on other occasions. It doesn't mean that I'm fine now and never suffer with anxiety again, although it's never got as bad as that again. I'm sharing that because everything I'm going to say now can sound a little bit like... Here are ways to solve anxiety. Here are ways to solve the problem of depression and worry. Really what I want to encourage us to believe at the beginning of this is that in the end there is a person who solves anxiety and depression. The the solution to this problem that afflicts so much of the world and may well be affecting us, uh, some of us here today, is not ultimately found in techniques. Techniques manage, but Jesus redeems. And that's not just a kind of pious, pie-in-the-sky idea. That is legitimately what I have found to be my own experience of life. Is that techniques help me manage, but Jesus frees. And so everything I want to say this morning, and I'm aware that I've now thrown the structure of this talk completely out of whack, but I just feel convinced that I need to begin there by saying that nothing I say should make us think that there's anything other than Jesus can solve these problems. We can manage without him but we can never be free without him. Anxiety is a major issue in contemporary society. Data from the US National Institute for Mental Health suggests that the prevalence of anxiety disorders in the US may be as high as 40 million people in America alone. Anxiety, worry, stress is a really interesting thing because in some ways it's good. It's a necessary thing. It's worrying about my children crossing the road and being hit by a car is what makes me stop them crossing the road on their own, right? 
Worrying about not having anything to eat is what makes me get up and go to work. Right? There's a certain amount of worry that is good. It's, it's our proper response to the world around us, and it prompts us to action. People who don't care about anything very often don't seem to care about anyone either. We should worry. We should be anxious about some things. If we see someone who is naked, Isaiah says, that should prompt us to be worried about how they're going to stay warm. And because we're worried about that, we give them clothes. When we see someone who's hungry, we should be worried about them starving, and so we give them food. Having said that, one of the things that's happening in contemporary society is that that kind of good anxiety, that good worry, that good carefulness about life is becoming totally distorted. Trends for uh, the level of anxiety disorders in the West in particular are rocketing. I know personally more people who are afflicted with stress and anxiety disorders with depression and worry than I do any other medical condition. And it's debilitating. If you're someone who's been in this, if it gets to the point where you're struggling even to get out of bed or to leave the house, it is a really extraordinarily problematic condition. What causes it? Well, there are many causes to this. Um, Philosopher J.P. Mordland, who's written what I think is the best help guide, and I'll be talking about it a bit later, on this issue, just published now, uh, reviews contemporary research. He offers a list of things that can cause anxiety and depression. According to research, genetic predispositions. You can suffer from uh, depression or anxiety because your family has a tendency to suffer from it. There's a chemical imbalance in you. Parenting. You know, in the immortal words of Philip Larkin, slightly uh, made more polite for a church audience, they mess you up, your mum and dad. <laughs> right? It's a sobering thought for me. I remember when I went to uh, a parenting uh, class uh, in advance of the boys being born. They don't let you go to the normal uh, parenting classes because basically every time you get to an NCT class and you have twins, they get to the end and they say, oh, by the way, everything else you just heard that you paid £150 for or something is totally irrelevant for you. So they did put on a special twins, uh, twins-centric one. If you are someone who's expecting twins, I don't know, maybe you are, or you are someone who uh, knows someone who's expecting twins, let me save you the money. Here's the answer. Everything you do will mess them up in some way. Parenting, early childhood experiences, current lifestyle. This is a big one, particularly in this area, where we work in the city or in uh, creative professions or in very high-intensity lifestyles. It's a massive issue around here. Lifestyle causes stress and anxiety. We work too long and too hard. We work too far away from our home, so we spend time commuting. We don't see enough of our family, so we're worried about them. And we are exhausted, so we're worried about that. Facebook and social media and TV coverage contribute to this. Constantly in communication with people. It's why uh, levels of anxiety amongst teenagers have absolutely skyrocketed. And the first year that they noticed that to happen was the year the iPhone came out. It's gradually, it's mo- uh, smartphones have got more and more prevalent. Anxiety levels amongst young people have got higher and higher. Why? Well, a lot of reasons, but the big one is you're on always connected to your friends. So there's no space. We live in the West in a world that's removed any sense of private space. Lifestyle. Inability to predict or control the future. That's a biggie. Let me talk about that a bit more in in a minute. Research has found, however, that 50% of what determines our happiness, sorry, 40% of what determines our happiness is not down to 
genetic results, nor even to life circumstances. Actually, when they've done research on what predicts levels of happiness in people, only 10% of your level of happiness or contentment with your present situation, whatever that is, is due to the circumstances you're in. I was sobered when I read that. As somebody who struggled with anxiety and with depression, I was sobered when I read the cold hard statistics that only 10% of that is the result of my circumstances, my job being too stressful or having to counsel people in hospitals or any of that, or problems with the kids. It is a a cause, it is a factor, but it's not the big one. The big one, apart from your genetics, is how we choose to respond. How we engage with the world. In other words, a significant part of what determines our anxiety levels and our happiness is determined not by what happens to us, but by how we respond to it. By the habits we form in its face. Jesus had a lot to say about this. That's what we're going to look at this week. Jesus says there are some ways that the way we see the world and we interact with the world leads us to worry. And then he gives some answers for how it is we can learn to cope with this. Say before I begin to outline this, uh, what Jesus says about this. Um, The question of drugs, antidepressant drugs, and other medication to control anxiety and depression is uh, a live one for some Christians. Everyone has to make their own decision about if you're suffering from depression, whether you go on antidepressant drugs. And there are reasons for and against depending upon your personality and how you cope with medication. What I want to say is there's nothing unfaithful or unchristian about it. It's no more unfaithful or unchristian to have medication for your mental health than it is for your physical health. So if you think it's fine to take paracetamol because you've got a headache, you ought to feel it's okay to take some form of medication to help with your mental health as well. I'm not going to talk any more about that, but I want to say that at the beginning, because I know that that's a concern for some people. We're going to read several bits of the Bible. I've included some readings from the Old Testament, the writings that came before Jesus to set the scene, and some later writings by Jesus' earlier followers, reflecting on what his teaching means in practice. So, if you've got a Bible, grab it. Let's read. Going to read first of all from Matthew chapter 6. And this is the bit you need to keep your finger in if you are uh, reading. I'm reading from verse 24. If you've not got a Bible or you don't know how to use it, don't worry. I'll put the words on the screen. If you have got the Bible, then Matthew's about that far in. Page 971 in the books at the back. Reading from verse 25. Uh, sorry, verse 24. This is Jesus speaking. He says, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. It's not life, more than food and the body more than clothes look at the birds of the air they do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them are you not much more valuable than they 
Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to their life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They don't labour or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendour was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we wear, or what shall we eat, or what shall we drink? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Okay, we're going to read some uh, other passage of the Bible just to set the scene. So, Roger, do you want to come and read to us? Roger's going to come and read from Psalm 127, verse 1 to 2. Don't worry about finding it. There you go. It's just there. Go ahead. Um, hello, everyone. Um, just to say, um, I've got healthy anxiety at the moment. <laughs> um, and God's given me the strength again. Thank you. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Thanks, Roger. Thank you, Roger. Let's read another one. This is Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. There will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. And this is one from the life of Jesus. See, there's a lot in the Bible about worry, and I just wanted to give you a feel for it now. This is what it says uh, in Luke's uh, Gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 10 and verse 41. It tells a story about Jesus visiting two friends of his, a a woman called Mary and her sister Martha. This is one I think that's particularly relevant for us. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha had opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has asked me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Oh, oh missed off the verse. So <laughs> why it's good to have a paper Bible. Because sometimes you forget to stick in the next verse on your keynote. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And then finally, how did St. Paul respond when he meditated on these verses? He said, don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, 
with thanksgiving present your requests to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. These are the words of God. We we'll always try and give a summary of what it is that we are studying this week. And here is today's. If you go uh, home and you think, I want to remember the one thing that we learnt, the one thing that God was saying to me this morning, this might be it. The path to peace is to trust Jesus in the present. The path to peace is to trust Jesus in the present. The path to peace is to trust Jesus in the present. What does this mean? Well, keep your fingers open in Matthew 6. Jesus identifies in these verses, I'm going to put uh, a slide on the screen in a minute that helps to summarise what I'm saying. There. Look at that. Spectacular use of keynote. If you're taking notes, that's what I'm going to say. You can just tune out and go to sleep now. Jesus identifies three ways that our thinking gets distorted and causes us anxiety and worry. The first is that we get a wrong idea about God. The first is that we get wrong ideas about God. Our view of God becomes distorted and our view of the world is made. And that causes us anxiety. You see, Jesus says you forget that God is in control and that he's good. This is verses 26 to 30. We forget that God is in control and that he's good. There is a temptation to believe that everything depends upon us. I, this is a big one for me. Uh, if you ask Heather, she will tell you uh, till she's blue in the face. Uh, that the, one of the big problems that I have is that when, I, when my thinking is becoming distorted, a big warning light that something's gone wrong and I need a rest, is that I start to think that if I don't do it, the world's going to collapse. I need to ensure the kids are right. I need to ensure the church is right. I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to. I, I've just got to, if I just can't, if I, ah! Of course, the spluttering is because you can't do that. Right? It's actually a, a worldview problem. We, we see the world as depending upon us and not on God. We forget that the universe operates under God's hand. And this is a problem in our age. Our age has become, uh, its thinking has become distorted on this issue. In uh, years gone by, they were fully aware that the world operated through natural processes. Right? They've always known that uh, the way babies made is not that God knits together a person and puts them inside someone, that men and women get married and then have children. Right? They knew that, and yet they operated with a, w- a view of the world that said that as well as that, there's also God behind it. That in everything, there is also God at work. That over the billions of years of the development of life and the growth of life on this planet, there are natural mechanisms and God is at work. And in our age, we started to forget that. And the consequence is that instead of living without God, we try and replace him with ourselves. Right? This is what's called philosophical naturalism. There you go. There's a, that, that's the money shop for today. Philosophical naturalism says that there's nothing except the matter that you're handling. So you might think that you're alive and that you are thinking and that you are a person, but that's just an illusion. Right? You're not really here. 
All that's happening is that inevitably, one molecule started moving in the first place and everything else that happened afterwards happens mechanically. Like a game of mousetrap. I press one button and then a thing falls and then another thing falls and then another thing falls. So you might think that you're thinking, you might think that you're loving, but you're not really. You're just mechanically following through. You might think that someone does something to you and therefore you feel sad. That's not true either. You might think that you decided to do this. That's not true. This is philosophical naturalism. It might sound like nonsense. It is nonsense. And yet, believe it or not, this is the dominant worldview of our age. Right? There are actual, very serious, very significant philosophers who actually argue that they themselves do not exist and that no one exists and that argument is impossible, even as they're arguing. C.S. Lewis was the first to say, I'm putting my hand up and say, no, I just think this is just nonsense. It seems a terrible explanation of the way we see the world. And yet we can live like this. We might not start to think that everything's inevitable, but we can live as if everything is on us. As if everything does really depend upon me. I need to sort it out because if I don't do it, no one else will. I need to make sure that my family is well provided for because if I don't do it, no one else is going to look out for us. I need to make sure that this happens because if I don't do it, no one else is going to intervene. That's one view of life. Or you can have another view of life. This is the second one that Jesus is critiquing in these verses, verses 26 to 30. The second view of life is there is a God, but he isn't good. He doesn't really love me. And therefore I keep having to demonstrate why he should do something for me. This is just another version of the first, really. I panic because he might just decide it was funny one day to let me suffer rather than seeing him as good and essentially guiding our lives and responding in grace and in love. It's been like my kids have learned the word deal at the moment. I'll make you a deal, Daddy. Make you a deal, Daddy. Here's the deal. I will go to bed if you give me an ice cream. (laughs) Well, that's not a deal. Daddy doesn't make deals. (laughs) You don't need to deal with Daddy. Daddy gives you stuff because he loves you. And yet we can get the I'll make a deal mentality with God. Of course, it's a question of control. What we really want is to control God. But it also produces anxiety. You see, Jesus says, in response to these two things, they both sound amazing. They both sound like they're going to bring freedom and grace and truth. And they're gonna, they sound like, yes, let's throw off the shackles of this divine dictator and then we will be free to run the world as we like. And then we get to running our little bit of the world and it turns out to be incredibly stressful. Human beings, we're not built to be God. We can't control everything. We can't take care of everything. We can't make stuff happen. I cannot ensure my children are happy. It's taken a long time for me to realise that. I can't make them happy. I can't. I can't even ensure that we have food to eat. I can't. I can go out and try and get a job. I've got a job at the moment. If the church folds and I get sacked or I get fired for this sermon, you're laughing. Then we won't have any money. I'm really sorry. I don't want to add to your anxiety, but if you're in employment, it might finish tomorrow. Now that sounds like a funny thing to say, but I just want us to wake up to reality. You're not God. I'm not God. 
The West, we think we're so powerful. We think we control everything. I remember a couple of years ago when there was all the flooding happening. And suddenly I was sitting in a car driving to a youth church thing with one of the guys from St. Peter's. And we were chatting and he was in response. He was DEFRA, I think it's DEFRA. And he was responsible for coordinating the response to flooding. There was literally water flooding over the streets. And what I realised is that we have this illusion of control. We think we've tamed the world. It only has to be rain for, for eight days straight or something. And suddenly everything's broken. We control nothing. We're not God. But Jesus says, but there is a God. And he does control the world. He does govern the world. And he does love you. Philosophical naturalism is nonsense. We know that there is a mind. We know people have souls. Everybody behaves as if this is the case. Everybody behaves as if there's a spiritual dimension to the world. Everybody knows this is to be true. We just stick our fingers in our ears and shut our eyes. And then go on acting as if it's true. There is a God and he does love you. And he is in control. Which means that, my friends, whilst you can't control your employment, you can't control your children, you can't control your pension, there is a God and he does love you and he is able to provide for you. Second, we can have the wrong priorities. This is verse 25 and 31 to 33. If you're looking at it. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. We have the wrong priorities. You see, God has designed us to be satisfied by some things and not by others. Some things satisfy us and other things don't. And rather annoyingly, the things that satisfy us are not always the ones that we want. Now again, it might just be my stage of life, but this seems vividly illustrated for me by my children. The things that they want are, in order of priority, yo-yo bears, which are a kind of candy roll where you put in basically sugar in the, in the shape of a roll, the uh, uh, flavoured strawberry. They would like that, followed by ice cream, followed by a wrap, followed by ketchup on its own, and in Abby's case, a spoonful of mayonnaise. <laughs> now, you might think that's disgusting. And, ugh, 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 ugh. The things, I was just illustrating the point, the things we want are not the things we need, not the things that actually satisfy us. What they want is to stay up all night watching Match of the Day and highlights on the football and playing FIFA, and what they need is sleep. Now we can extrapolate, that's easy with kids, it's easy to laugh at kids, isn't it? Grown-ups do this. What we want is cars and money and a nice house and a big family and a a very attractive wife or husband and to have uh, all the leisure time we like and anything we want and we we want it now and we want to be in control of it. We want, we want, we want, we want. It's basically we want candy floss all the time. That's what people want. And God says you can have all of that and it won't satisfy your soul. Because you weren't made to have that. Gives you a sugar rush. Again, this is a disease of our age. We live in the West, we live in a sugar rush generation. Always chasing the next tantalising little, titillating little thing. Have I binge watched the whole of the last series on Netflix? What's the next one? Perish the thought that I have an evening where I'm bored and I might have to read or meditate or pray.
The actor and comedian Jim Carrey said, I wish that everyone could become extremely successful, rich and famous and get everything they want because then they would know it doesn't satisfy their souls. Slightly misquoted because I can't remember the end of it. I wish everyone could get everything they want because then they'd realise they didn't want it. God has designed us to be satisfied by some things and not others. When we pursue money or power or selfishness or sex, that's a big one in our generation, we think these things will satisfy us and they don't. Jesus says they just produce anxiety because the anxiety, of course, is why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? I've got money. Why do I want more money? Well, the answer must be more money. Part of this is because there's a limit to how effectively we can get them. We kid ourselves about how effective we can be at this. But mainly it's because if we obtain anything without God, it will not satisfy our souls. Right? That sounds like a Bible bashing claim. I'm absolutely convinced of it and it's completely true. You are made up and I am made up not only of a body and a mind, but of a spirit and a soul. And unless that part of us is satisfied, we will never be satisfied. God has created us for himself and we find our rest in him. God is the thing for which our souls long. It is only his presence that we can ever find joy or peace, irrespective of how, far, how successful we are at anything else. There is a uh, social scientist and a philosopher in America, uh, his name has completely skipped my mind, and it will come back to me by the end of the talk. He wrote a book about this called um, uh, How to Be Happy. He wrote down, he predicted uh, the happiness, on average, based upon research, of two different people. One of them was a, an overweight, African-American, uh, impoverished lady living with a husband and two children and barely enough money in the south of America so in a context where there had been extreme racism, and who went to church every week but had nothing. And he said, and the other one was a rich white man, so every societal uh, advantage you could have, living in the north of America who had prospered in every way. He said, predict for me which, which of these is the happier. He said, on every observable measure, the lady in the south with the health problems, no money, and a history of experiencing racism is happier. Why? Because predictor, the best predictor of happiness and peace and prosperity is membership of the church and because networks of relationships with others. It's almost as if when Jesus said, what does God require of us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbours as ourselves, Jesus knew what he was talking about. These things produce anxiety. Jesus' response is to seek God's kingdom first, seek his presence, his reign, his justice. It isn't that we don't need other things. He says, your father knows that you need money and clothes, and it's not, I'm not saying sell everything and run around naked. That would lead to be getting fired. But rather, they're not the most important things. Don't seek them first. Let them happen because they happen. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The most important questions are always, how can I know God in this situation? And what does God want here? If we follow that principle, God will add everything else we need because he's good and he's in control. Paradoxically, the way to obtain happiness in money is not to aim for money, but to aim for God. Then God will give you the money and you'll be happy. Finally, we can have a wrong relationship with time. Now, go with me on this. Because this is a bit esoteric. I understand that. Have a wrong relationship with time. Yet, actually, this is one of the most central problems that people who experience anxiety and depression 
have. In our minds, we start to project forward all the ways that situations can turn out. I call it what ifery or what aboutery. What if my son goes to school, he doesn't fit in? What if he then becomes isolated and withdrawn? What if, as a result of being isolated and withdrawn, he gets in the wrong kids at uh, university, sorry, at uh, high school? As a result of getting in the wrong kids at university, he goes on drugs. What if he goes on drugs, then he probably won't go to university? What if he doesn't go to university and he might get, get a job? What if in 30 years' time, because of me not doing something now, he's living in a council house surrounded by other drug dealers in, povish, in, in poverty and uh, in rags? And the original question I started with was, should he have packed lunches at school? Right? We extrapolate into the future. We live in tomorrow. Now, I've given an example of what um, psychologists call catastrophization, right? Which is you combine what ifery with always imagining the worst case scenario. Right? Give me another one. Here's one I've come off my head. See, I, I excel at this. I excel at it. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not world-class at many things. I am world-class at worrying about the future of my kids. I mean, I don't want to be rude, but none of you are as good as me. Okay, I'll be very surprised. What if I give him the wrong pack lunch, he goes into school, he doesn't like the food, so he gets on a sugar low, he hits someone at school, so he gets suspended, so he's suspended, so he's at home with me, so I can't go to work, so I lose my job. So... I could, I, could, I could do this all day. We live in the future. That's one, that's one version of anxiety, where you combine it with catastrophization. The other is we're living in the future is that we make plans, and the plans go on forever. I'm going to do this with my business, and then this will result, 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 and then this will result. And you think, I should be getting less stressed, and actually I'm getting more. Because now I've got to make sure that every one of these things happens. We live in the future, not in the present. This practice is inevitably misleading and unhelpful. First of all, it's misleading because we're rubbish at it. I mean, just rubbish. Just rubbish. Rubbish at it for two reasons. First of all, there are thousands of variables you can't possibly know, right? Can't possibly predict the future. Just thousands of things you don't know about, and I don't know about. I see rubbish at it. I don't want to be rude. I'm rubbish at it. Secondly, because when we imagine the future, the other reason we're rubbish about it is because we don't imagine the action of God. I'll give you a concrete example of this. The biggest Christian country in the world by 2050, according to every statistical survey, will be China. China is the fastest growing location for Christianity in the world. There will be, by the time uh, of 2050, according to current trends, if things carry on as they are, either 50% or just under 50% of the of Chinese population will be Christian. Christian will be the biggest Christian China, sorry, will be the biggest Christian country in the world. Now that might be a surprise. Partly it's because it it <laughs> discombobulates every serious narrative we tell ourselves in the West about the decline of religion. Actually, religion is projected to grow. Christianity is projected to grow worldwide over the next 100 years, not declining. It is growing at the moment, not declining, right? We made the classic colonialist, imperialist mistake of thinking that if it's happening to us, it's happening to everyone. Right? It's just nonsense. But secondly, the point I'm making is that 100 years ago, no one even imagined that that would be the case. 
It was inconceivable. You could have fitted the number of Chinese Christians at the turn of the 20th century in this room that we know about. And yet by 150 years later, there is going to be half a billion. Or a billion, depending on which projection you think about. Nobody thought it would happen. Why? Because we're rubbish at predicting the future. We don't know. We can't predict what God's going to do. God is alive and he's in the world and he's doing stuff and we don't know what it is. Second, it isn't true spiritually. Now here's the deep stuff. This is the point where I'm going to give you a clue. In a minute you're going to need to go, oh. Not my insight, insight of a 4th century monk called Evagoras. When we build a model of the future in our minds, we can't meet Jesus in it. Because Jesus isn't there. That's why it's stressful. The only place you can encounter Christ and find peace is in the present. Because this is where Jesus is now. When the future comes, you will meet Jesus there. When the future comes, you will encounter Christ there and find peace. But for now, he's not in the future and nor are you. So imagining the future, focusing on the future, is a surefire way to being anxious and worried. Because you're not with Christ. Christ is here now. Christ dwells in the present. And he will meet with you in the present if you let him. He doesn't dwell in some imagined fantasy that you have. The question is always, how can I live with and serve Jesus now? Let's think about how we can apply this. Number one, come to Jesus. This is where I started. Jesus is the one who gives peace. That's my my testimony, my experience. Jesus is the one who gives true and lasting peace. If you've not come to Christ and actually asked him to lead you and to be the Lord of your life and said, actually, I can't carry on on my own. I want to live for you instead. Then that's what you need to do. The first step towards finding real peace is to do that. But then... We can work with his spirit to live better. So this is a second suggestion. Consciously go and assess the decisions that you take about life. When one is thinking about buying a house or moving jobs or starting a new club or putting the kids in school or whatever it is, what are actually the things you're thinking about when you take those decisions? I'm not asking you to tell me. It doesn't matter if you tell me or not. But you do need to be honest with yourself. I need to be honest with myself. How do I take decisions? Do I seek first the kingdom of God? If the first thing, and I suspect it might be, because when I did this, I found out the first thing is always which thing will give me a higher income or which will lead to a better quality of life for my kids. Then we just need to gently challenge ourselves whether they are the only things that matter. Or whether something else needs to be spoken about as well. Third, begin the day asking God to show you what is right for that day. It's a practical tip. Begin the day saying, Jesus, what is it that you want today? Not tomorrow. I'm not worried about tomorrow. What is it you want for me today? Today might I do this or the other. Don't make plans. I mean, each one of us has to plan a certain amount. I have a diary. I've made a certain amount of plans. 
I have a tentative plan for what we'll do in the next year with the church. But can I encourage us, don't make very big plans. Try and ask, what is it that God wants for me today? Because that way, we will correct our tendency to live in the future. Instead, we'll live in the present. When I say begin the day asking God, I mean actually speak the words. You'll find that helpful. Fourth, cultivate daily prayer to give thanks. I recommend a gratitude journal. That sounds a bit uh, touchy-feely, doesn't it? I I, uh, occasionally um, have contact with people who are very, very senior in the city. Um, You can do an ooh if you want. And uh, they come along to me and occasionally I say, oh, how's it going? Almost without exception, they're stressed. The thing that I've advised them that's made the biggest difference in their lives is pick up a journal, a cheap journal from a newsagent, and a pen, nice pen, because good pens are good, and every day write down the things you're grateful for. Write down the things you're grateful for. You'll find it transforms how you see life. Fifth, if you notice your mind moving too far ahead, stop. Rewind. Ask Jesus to show himself in the present and to show you what to do now. This requires a certain measure of self-awareness. I've actually, I've noticed that my thoughts have started to race. I realise that I'm now at the point where Ben, age 23, is taking drugs in a council house. I need to rewind. Jesus, actually, help me see you now. Where are you now? Sixth. This is the mystical one. I strongly, strongly encourage you and me, us, to practice either contemplative prayer or prayer in tongues or both. Uh, I'm not a theoretical charismatic. Um, If you don't know what that means, don't worry. But for the moment, I I really believe that God filled me with this Holy Spirit and has given me a way of praying which doesn't just use my mind. The, the praise with my heart. I, I don't have time to share how to do that now, but I would encourage you, if you've never received a, a, a prayer language from God, to ask God if it's right for you to have one. And then start praying in that. Another way of doing that is to get one of these. You can get them off Amazon. I'll hold it up now. This is a Greek Orthodox prayer rope. Uh, you don't need one of these, but I find it helpful. Um, it costs me about £13. Uh, they're actually uh, made on Mount Athos in Greece by Greek Orthodox monks. None of that's relevant. The way that you use it, but it is fun. The way that you use it is that you hold one of the knots, and on each one of the knots, I pray the words. I shut my eyes. Shut my eyes. I put my head down. I'm in quiet, and I'm literally I'm praying, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. And so on. I should find it difficult to stop once I start. It is spiritually transformative. You can find other ways of doing it. J.P. Moreland has an excellent book. If you are wanting to write down a resource, I'm afraid I don't have it with me. A book published this summer called Finding Quiet. Finding Quiet by J.P. Moreland. I'll put it, bring it next week. Finding Quiet by J.P. Morland. You can't have it, it's mine. I'm not lending it to anyone because I haven't finished working it through it for the second time. Brilliant book. He has some other suggestions for other types of contemplative prayer.
path to peace is to trust Jesus in the present. Talk for a little bit long there, and I'm sorry if that's made some of you anxious. Just going to leave some quiet. Pray, come Holy Spirit. I encourage you to shut your eyes if you can. To put your hands out. You might feel like this is ridiculous, but actually the way that we sit, physically what we do, affects how we feel and how we think. And I just want to encourage us to be looking to God and saying, actually, I want to receive from you. Pray, come Holy Spirit, would you minister grace to us? Fill us with the Holy Spirit. Bring us to Jesus. And then we're going to take communion together and sing some songs. I'm not going to look while I do this um, because I don't want anyone to feel embarrassed. And I know that this is particularly an area where we feel embarrassment. So, but I just really strongly sense that I should do it. So I, I sense that there are some here who need prayer for anxiety and depression. And what I want you to do is to put your hand on your heart. If you feel like you would like prayer for, for anxiety and depression, people should still be sitting with their eyes closed. You should put your hand on your heart and I'm going to pray for you and I just want you to pray, say, yes, Lord, that's me. Holy Spirit, we just pray, come, Jesus. Come, presence of Jesus. Come and release these dear ones. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would pour into their lives. Jesus, I pray that you would help those who need it to know that you love them. Lord, break the spirit of fear and anxiety. I break it in Jesus' name. Pray healing from anxiety and depression and fear in Jesus' name. Come, Lord Jesus, would you break that anxiety? Pray, come, Holy Spirit, be healing. We say to the anxiety and depression, go in Jesus' name. Be gone in Jesus' name. I just want to encourage you, if you have been praying that prayer, to then work with God, over the coming days and weeks, I think that will have broken something of the power of it, but then you need to work with him to recover, to think and to meditate. If you want to talk to someone about how to do this, then come and speak to me.